0: I'd like to invite our children to come up front, and uh, we're going to do something a little special with them to begin with. So, if you consider yourself a child, which in my case, I generally would probably come down, come on down, have a seat on the front row. Don't be bashful. There is a reward at the end of this. So, it's, trust me, it's worth it, okay? So, come on down. We'll get to that in we will get to this started in just a minute. As a church, we are incredibly blessed to have an amazing, amazing Sunday school. Our teachers, they have a heart for the Lord and a heart for our children that is absolutely incredible. Um, But in this season, the ICP Summer Edition, where three-fourths of the congregation is elsewhere, it's a little difficult to do Sunday school. But your children are so important to us, and, and we want you to know that. So we're going to begin with a children's message, and uh, we're hoping that you'll listen along as well. Now, also, if, you're, if your children are a little like me, they, they don't sit well, because um, I don't. Becky usually has things in her purse for me to do when we're at some event, and, you know, so she'll get the crayons out and that kind of stuff. We do have some children's bulletins that are in the foyer that have some activities that follow along with the Scripture. But... Today, what we're going to talk about, and I'm going to need your guys' help with, is we're going to talk a little bit about sin and temptation. That doesn't sound like a very good topic, does it? Ugh, kind of yucky. Who knows what sin is? Any ideas? What do you think? Yes. Doing the wrong... That's a great definition. It's doing the wrong thing. What it means is... Pretend there's a great big target right up there on that screen. And what we need to do to do right is hit the very middle of the target. But if I miss the target, even by a little bit or by a lot, I haven't hit the target. And sin is missing the mark, but it's doing ultimately what we know is wrong. Now, God has given you and I some, a precious gift called our conscience, Inside, we have a sense of what is right and what is wrong. It's part of his fingerprint that he placed on us. Um, But we still have a trouble. Even though we often know what's right and what's wrong, we oftentimes still want to do the wrong thing, especially like if mom and dad says, no, you can't have any candy. How could mom and dad be so mean? I mean, don't they know I need some candy? I would love some candy. Well, here's the thing about temptation. Temptation is kind of like candy floss, or if you're from America, cotton candy. Yes, do you, Landry, do you like cotton candy? I do too. You know, here's the thing about cotton candy, though, is what I've discovered is, in fact, just take, just take a little taste, and I want you to tell me how long this lasts in your mouth. Is it still there? It's really? Wow, this is Czech cotton candy. It's got more oomph in it than... than it, it's gone, isn't it? Pretty much. You see, that's kind of what sin is like, is it looks really, really good, but it doesn't have substance. There's nothing that really rewards us beyond that instant moment of gratification. So how do we deal when, we're, when we know to do right, but we want to do wrong, how is it that we resist temptation? Well... Our conscience is part of that. Also, sometimes we can have someone who helps us, who holds us accountable. That can be a really good thing. But if you're like me, that's usually not enough because it might not be cotton candy that tempts me, but there are other things that tempt me a lot. And too often, I choose to do wrong. But what helps me resist temptation and find out that God actually has something better for me even though I think the cotton candy is exactly what I want, what helps me is to remember that I've been united with Christ. And let me show you what that looks like. I'm going to ask Daniel to stand right over here. All right. So you stand right there, and here's the deal. In your strength and your ability, because you are the man, you need to keep me because I'm temptation from getting past you. Got it? Sweet. <laughs> you lost. But you did really, really good. Okay. That's okay. Good job. And he's even wearing a Hoosier shirt. That is super <laughs> awesome. Oh, I'm from Indiana, so that's like music to my ears. Now, what if Daniel didn't have to stand on his own? What if, in fact, what the Bible tells us is that we're united with Christ, which means that we're in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is in us. So I need Jesus and the Holy Spirit, which is, happens to be Stephen and, let's see, who else we want to, want to volunteer here? Joe, Joe you, can be, you can be the Holy Spirit. All right. Wow. Here you go. Jesus, would you take a hold of this fine young man right there and, and the Holy Spirit, would you come alongside of him? All right, now, Daniel is united in Christ. He is in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is in him. And when he remembers that, there's no way that me, little old temptation, can get past him, right? Because it's not your strength, it's their strength. Does that make sense? Let's see if this works. (laughs) Man, <laughs> they pushed back temptation very well. Thank you very much. All right. Now, here's the ultimate thing about, that we need to remember about temptation. Is we remember that what God has for us is even better than the things we may think that we want, but we know in our heart are wrong. And just to remind you of that, I want you, you got your choice here between some marshmallow things or some Skittles. Would you like to have some candy that you take back? No one? Okay. Would you pass that out for us? Now, here's the the thing to remember. To remember our union in Christ, that we're connected with Him, we need to remember who we are in Christ. So to remind us all of that, as you get your candy and then go back to your seats, we're gonna play this little video that reminds all of us who we are in Christ Jesus. So would you play, Who Am I?
1: Who am I? Am I what I do? An artist? An accountant? A teacher? A mother? Or am I what I've achieved? An honor student? An MVP? A winner? Am I the things I've done right? Or am I defined by the things I've done wrong? Am I a saint? A sinner? What about what others think of me? Am I all of these things? None of these things? Who am I? How I identify myself determines how I approach life. If I am what I do, I'll always need to do more and achieve more to find my value. If I am what others say, I'll always try to please people instead of my Heavenly Father. But if I listen to who God says I am and embrace His identity in me, I'll find the freedom to live out all He has planned for me. God calls me His child. He says I am wise and restored, that I'm a brand new creation in Christ. I am chosen and holy and blameless before God. He calls me His masterpiece. I am loved by God. He says, I am made complete through the grace and mercy of Jesus, my Savior. And when I see myself the way God sees me, I walk with confidence because I trust the one who answers the question, who am I?
0: All right. Thank you so much for helping me with my sermon. You guys are awesome. You listened really well. You can go back. It's important for us, if we are to um, resist temptation, to remember that we're not alone and not to do it in our own strength and our own power and to remember that if we placed our trust in Jesus Christ, that means that we are united with Him. We are in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is within us. And that union transforms everything about us. It changes our identity and it changes how we can deal with sin and sinful desires. Now, here in our passage, James is beginning uh, um, to talk about quarrels or battles between people. And specifically, he means people within the church. There's conflict at times within the church. And what he instructs us here in James chapter 4, verse 1, is he, he asks this question. What causes the battle or the quarrels or fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires are at war within you? Now, one of the things that we need to remember whenever we have a conflict is that the battle between people comes from the war within our own hearts. That is the first battleground we need to examine because long before I'm able to Reconcile a battle that I may have with another person. First, I need the Lord to do work in my own heart and my own life. Now, all of us both have experienced conflict and caused conflict. It, chances are, if I asked you to raise your hands and you're honest, you've even caused some conflict. It's part of who we are because we're fallen, we're sinful. Now, in, in our family, Um, We have four wonderful children. Um, They're all grown now. They're all married. Um, But when they were little, especially, they were very close together in age, and we had a very small house, which meant we spent a lot of time in really close quarters. And occasionally, not very often, maybe once every three or four years, there would be a little disagreement between the brothers and the sister. Isn't that how it is in your family? Yeah. Okay. Okay maybe every 15 minutes that happened, but somewhere along the line, there was occasionally some conflict, even though now their best friends, when they were young, it took a while for them to figure out how to get along. And um, chances are this happens in your family as well. When there was conflict, what would happen would be one of them would run and say, Mom, 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 or Dad, 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 Sam did this, or Luke did this, or Melissa, do you know what she did to me? Now, Micah the youngest never was blamed for anything, so uh, it was just the three older children. But, yeah, (laughs) he got in the most trouble, to tell you the truth. But here's the thing. Whenever that would happen, we had a rule as Mom and Dad and we simply asked one question. And they hated this question. The question was, before you tell me anything that your brother or sister did, I, wanna, I want you to answer this question. Were you doing right? I, I hate that question. They really hated that question because we weren't going to listen to any of their excuses, any of the things, even any of the events that happened until they answered that question. Now, The reason to ask that was that's what we need to ask ourselves. That's what I need to be asking is, Lord, show me my own heart. And that's where James is beginning right here. He's asking the Lord to have us look at our own hearts and see what's wrong. Now, he talks about pleasure here, and, and we need to understand that pleasure in itself is very good. God created pleasure. But the context of what he's saying here in these verses is that we're living for pleasure. When I'm living for my own comfort, my own wants, my own desires, I'm selfish. And that causes great conflict. In fact, when the same phrase is used elsewhere in the New Testament, um, Jesus himself describes those um, in his parable uh, about the seeds about those who fall among the thorns as being choked by the pleasures of life. The stuff of this world has so consumed them that the word of God can't penetrate their heart. And Titus in chapter three, verse three, which refers to people as slaves to their passions, to their desires. James is placing an emphasis on us examining our own heart so that we can deal with the war within before we even begin to look at the battle between. Now, a little later on, down in verses 11 and following, it deals with how we deal with conflict between people. But he sets the foundation of the way that we have to deal with our conflicts, first and foremost, is the war within. Now, with that, I want you to notice something. James, in his verses here, doesn't even begin to examine who's right and who's wrong. He's simply asking us to examine and explore our own heart. Let me read it to you again. What causes the quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, that's really strong language. Remember, this is is not written to people outside the church. This is written to believers. But he's helping us to see, using this incredibly strong language, how important this is to God. Jesus Christ, one of the things that he instructed, in fact, his great commandment was for us to love one another. And that when we love one another, as Christ has loved us, the rest of the world will know we're his followers. So conflict is a very serious thing within the body of Christ. It matters to God. In fact, it matters so much that He is far more concerned about how you and I respond in the midst of conflict than who is at fault. That's a good foundation for us to begin with. It's more important to do right than to prove to others that we were right and they were wrong. It's a matter of faith. If I truly believe that God is God, that He is loving, that He is good, that He is in control, then I can trust Him completely. Even when I'm wrongly accused or you're wrongly accused or our motives are questioned, we are to put our trust not in the justice of humanity but in the goodness and greatness of God Himself. God knows all the details of our conflicts. He knows everything that's going on. He knows every mitigating circumstance, and He is the perfect judge who always knows what is right. But more importantly, He's incredibly gracious. And He asks us to respond rightly. In fact, Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. He says, "'You have heard that it was said, "'You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy.'" But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's incredibly important. What he's saying is how we respond to conflict, to accusations, to wrongs against us will reveal whether or not we are living as the son and daughter of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and talks about the the grace of God, the general grace, where he says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. But he calls us to respond like Jesus. And to understand that the battle between starts with the war within. And I have found this to be a very true principle in my own heart and life. This principle is is a reality. Whenever I begin to see that my life is being controlled by my emotions, by my desires, the first place I need to check is the gratitude and thankfulness of my own heart. Because when my thirst for what I do not have exceeds my thanks for what God has already given me, sin is at the door every single time. When my thirst for what I do not have Exceeds my thankfulness for what God has already given me, I'm already losing the war within. In fact, James touches on this in, in talking about the importance of prayer towards the end of his, his letter. In James chapter five, verse 13, he simply reminds us, "Is any one of you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. He's reminding us that what happens in our heart? will ultimately bear fruit in our relationships as well. In fact, he goes on to talk about our whole life in the following verses. Part of God's strategy to win the war within is taming our desires through prayer and praise to come to the point where we want what God wants more than I want what I want because that is where there is joy. Well, that's the principle, but let's, let's go and look at the problem. He tells us that there's a war within us, and he says that the outcome of that war will either build up the body of Christ or it will lead to division and further conflict. And in the verses that um, were read for us, it talks about how this conflict ultimately has a source in that it comes from the enemy. There's a battle in our own flesh and desires, but also it's part of the strategy of the enemy to cause division within the body of Christ, within the church, and within our other relationships as well. That's what he does. And we need to understand that there is a very real battle going on in you and me continually. And the way to begin to win any war is to understand ourselves and understand the enemy. There's an ancient book, The Art of War, by Sun Tzu, and he reminds us of a, a very important truth. He begins first of all by saying all warfare is deception. The same's true about sin. Sin looks like it's going to offer something that really will satisfy us, but it doesn't. In fact, when we taste of sin, we discover that that wasn't enough, and what we need is a little bit more. It's a deception. Sin offers a shadow rather than a substance. And in order for us to have victory, we need to understand what is at stake and understand the enemy. In fact, let me just read this from from Sun Tzu because even though it's definitely not something that's inspired, it is a truth. He says, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy... For every victory gained, you will suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will will succumb or lose every battle. Now, that touches on a deeper spiritual truth of we need to know that there is a battle within us and we need to know that the resource we have is not our own strength, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ being united with Him. So James goes on in verse 2 to say, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people means that we've, we're not living faithfully in our relationship with God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, conflict with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The truth is, we can be spiritually saved but physically living like an enemy of God. And that conflict within our own life will lead to despair and frustration and division, and heartache every single time. We're not living an integrated life where Christ is who we desire and who we serve. We're divided. And he uses these, these pictures, and he, and he gives some, some different things here. He talks about desire, and ultimately what he means there is lust, where I want what I do not have. I'm wanting what God has not chosen to give me at least yet. That's ultimately what lust is. He talks about coveting. Coveting is where I want what he's given someone else. It's a little bit different. It's not that I just want more for myself. I want what you have. In fact, often when I'm coveting, I'm thinking I deserve that and you don't. It's incredibly selfish. Selfish. And then he goes on to to describe a life that is faithless. You do not ask. You trust in your own resource, in your own ability, rather than calling upon the name of Jesus Christ to help us in the war within. And then he says, we're selfish. You ask with the wrong motive. We do go and pray to God, but we pray for the things that we want rather than asking God, what is it that you want? What is good for me? What is good? What is your plan for my life? What is your desire for me to do? And ultimately, that leads to spiritual unfaithfulness. The war within reveals that we're not faithful in our love for God in our heart. We want his gifts more than we want the giver. And the true treasure is God himself. Understand there is a real war within us And the truth is, sin will fascinate us right up to the point that it ultimately will assassinate us. It will kill us. It'll take away every joy. Now, if you're in Christ, if you place your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, your salvation relationship is absolutely secure. But if you're not living and placing your desires under the authority of God, Sin is still holding you as a slave, and God wants to set you free. Now, I want you to look at the next verse, verse 5, because this is really, really cool. It's written in a language that maybe doesn't, at first, maybe you don't see how powerful it is, but look what God says about you. Okay, and and see the picture. What he's describing is a life that is totally self-centered, totally selfish, Not somebody who's getting all kinds of high praise for doing the right things, right? He's he's describing someone who's lustful, who's covetousness, who's unfaithful, who's having conflict with other people. Doesn't sound like a great spiritual hero, does it? But what does God say about them? Look what it says in verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? What he's saying is God wants you. He gave his life for you so that you could have an intimate, joy-filled, loving relationship with him. He yearns for you. And this is a, a reference also to um, a passage in Jeremiah that talks about how God yearns for us. God desires you. The God of the universe cares so much about you that he wants your life to be whole and filled with all of the goodness he has to offer. And so in the midst of being selfish and self-centered and sinful, what is God's first response? He says, I want you. Now this should send a really clear message. It doesn't matter how far you may have strayed or how far I may have strayed, God still desires you and me. Isn't that good news? I mean, if I messed up totally If I've blown my relationships, if I've destroyed my family, if I've um, shown myself to be um, greedy and irresponsible and all kinds of lists of other things, God still says, I want you. That's an amazing, amazing God. God desires you and loves you more than you can imagine. And the truth is, for our own good, he will not relent until he becomes our all in all. Now, there are times when we don't like that. Our selfishness says, God, could you just just let me go for a little bit? And he doesn't do that because he wants what is best for you and I. He wants our life to be filled with joy. Now, that's... The passion that God has for us. And then we see the solution, the power that God has for how we win the war within. Because that's what these next verses are all about. The power source for winning the war within. Look what it says in verse 6. In the midst of this, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of failure, in the midst of our rebellion against God, what does God do? It says he gives more grace. I'm not someone who often says, you know, you should respond to that, but you should respond to that. In the midst of our mess, God responds to your sin and my sin by giving us more grace because he loves you so much. That is good, good news. He won't let go. And I love that because God's solution for our lives, for our world, is grace. There's a beautiful passage in the book of Zechariah. It says this in Zechariah 4, verses 6 through 7. Then he said to me, this is the Lord. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He's saying the power source for victory in your life, and in this case specifically, victory amongst the children of Israel was not their own strength, not their own armies, not their own resources, not their self-will, not their conscience, none of those things. It was by his might, by his spirit. And how did he pour out his spirit and work on it? It tells us then. He says, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. In other words, there may be a mountain in your life and my life that you can't seem to get past. Maybe it's a habitual sin. Maybe it's a brokenness within your life because of things that have happened to you. But you feel like there's this huge mountain in front of you. And no matter what you do, you can't get past it. Well, God's promise is this. He says, he shall bring forward the top stone which refers to Jesus Christ with shouts of grace, grace to it. God's grace can bring down any mountain that you and I face, even the mountain of our own sin and unworthiness. That's the good news. The grace of Jesus is more powerful than the sin of my own heart. The grace that moves mountains is the grace that can transform a self-centered, sinful heart into one that honors God and experiences intimacy with Him. Now, James is saying what God does and what He wants us to remember in the midst of the war within and as we face temptation is not to try harder. He doesn't say that anywhere in here. He doesn't say do more. He says remember the grace of God and remember how you're to unite yourself with Him. Our pride is the soul set on self mode, but our pride recognizes that we fail, that we sin. So in our pride, the way that we tend to deal with sin and with failure is guilt and self-worth and in an order to try to regain our lost pride. When we try to win the war within with our own strength, in our pride, it leads to this cycle. This is what happens in you and I over and over again. We face temptation, and because we're trying to deal with temptation in our own strength, in our own plans, our own strategies, it leads most often to defeat. And in defeat, we choose to sin. And when we sin in that way, what we discover is what we thought was going to bring pleasure brings pleasure for a moment, but it quickly fades. And the next time, in order to to reach that same amount of initial pleasure, we have to do more. Because sin will always take us farther than we want to go and hold on to us longer than we want to stay. And so when we face temptation and sin in our own strength, it leads to defeat. And then because of the defeat, what do we feel? We feel guilty. We feel condemned. But what does the scripture say to us as believers? If we trust our faith, put our faith in Jesus Christ, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt. But when I try to do it in my own strength, I enter this cycle. And from the guilt, it leads to shame. And the shame is the tactic of the enemy to do exactly the opposite thing that we need to do when we sin. In shame, we respond just like Adam and Eve, and we hide ourselves from God. I don't know about you, but I can confess openly to you and myself that oftentimes when I rebel in my own strength, when I choose to sin, I have to wait a while before I confess. Here's why. I feel like I don't deserve it. That's true. Secondly, I feel like I need to feel bad for a while, and after I've felt agony emotionally in my own heart and life, then maybe I could go to God. Can I tell you that that is the dumbest thing ever? I do it, and I'm guessing that you might too because that's the tactic of the enemy to push us away from God rather than draw us closer. And that shame leads us back into that cycle where we fail over and over again. Guilt and condemnation always push us away. It's the strategy of the enemy to make you and I a slave once again to sin when Jesus Christ has set us free. so don't get stuck in that cycle. Legalism and the law, it cannot win the war within. The law reveals, yes, we have sinned, and it gives an accurate diagnosis no, di- excuse me, diagnosis. But the law is not the cure. Grace is the cure. The Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, uses conviction, not condemnation, to accomplish something drastically different. Instead of pushing us away, he uses conviction so that we can come closer to God. The Holy Spirit uses grace upon grace to win the war within your soul. By grace, Jesus conquered the penalty of death and sin, And the Holy Spirit uses the same grace to defeat the power of sin in your life and my life and give us victory in the war within. Grace calls us closer. Now look, let me show you now. Seeing that power source, it's not ourselves. It's God's grace. He gives us some action steps that we are to take. And I want you to see how, how this looks. Look at verses 7 through 11 the practice or the action steps that we need to take to win the war within. This is how we can trust in the future grace of God because God's grace is amazing. It's not just grace for today. He's saying, I'm giving you more. I'm gonna give you all that you need to have victory if you'll trust me. He says this, but he gives more grace, verse six. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, he opposes those who are trying to do things in their own strength, but he gives grace to the humble when we humble ourselves. And then he gives us um, five action steps to take. Number one, submit yourselves therefore to God. Number two, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now I'm going to start with that one. Notice the order here. It's really important. In our little example of, of temptation down here, um, Daniel tried to resist in his own strength, and he did a pretty good job because he's a strong kid, and, and it was amazing. But I was able to get past him. The same's true when we face temptation. He doesn't start with resisting. When you and I see that there's a battle within our own hearts of selfishness or rebellion against God, don't start with resistance because you're gonna lose if you do it in your own strength. He says, first of all, submit. Now, what does that mean? It means I place myself under the authority and power of God because God, who is gracious, is the one who can win the battle. I have to begin there. I say no to sin, but what I say first is yes to God. God, I want what you want. I want your power. I want your victory in my life. I'm choosing you because you are far more good, far better than anything my flesh or sin or temptation has to offer. We submit to God. Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 9 says it this way. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You're united with Christ. If, in fact, the Spirit of God truly dwells within you, choose His power source first. Then we're able to resist Now, that's the second step, is to resist the enemy and understand that there are two enemies of your soul and my soul. Number one is Satan, the adversary, but number two is the sinful desires in my own heart. And I need to do battle with both of them and say no to them. I need to resist them. And after we choose the authority of God, then we need to say no very quickly. Here's here's a truth. We need to resist sinful desires right away. If you hold on to them, even for a few seconds, you're going to lose. It's kind of like this. If you start watching the trailer, you know, the little preview of the movie of sin, you're going to stay for the whole show. It's the way it works in our hearts and lives. But when we say, no, I want what God wants and I'm choosing His authority He breaks that grip upon us and can set us free. We need to call sin what it is. The truth is most of us look at our own sin and we identify it as weakness. Don't do that. Because what happens is you and I will make allowances for our weaknesses. We will say, well, that's just how I am. Well, that may be just how you are or how I am, but it is not who Jesus Christ is. And if I am united with him, he can be victorious. We need to see our sin as an intruder coming to rob our life, our family, our relationships, our our jobs, everything about us from God's purpose and plan. That's why we resist it, is because God has something so much better. And it's important there to pray in the midst of that. Jesus, in in giving us the Lord's Prayer, taught us to pray, Lord, um, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the schemes of the enemy. We need to pray that as well. Because that's part of our submitting and resisting, is saying, I want your power, and I'm choosing to resist. And God's promise is is that if we trust him and resist the enemy, he will flee. Our own selfish desires will flee, and the attacks of the enemy must bow before the grace of God. That is really good news. John Owen, the great Puritan preacher, wrote extensively on killing sin, and he said, said this, It's ultimately about a greater desire. To respond to the distorting nature of sin, you must set your affection on the beauty and glory of God, the loveliness of Christ, and the wonder of His grace. That's what we're to do. And then the next step is the most beautiful thing. In the guilt cycle, guilt and shame pushes us away from God, but what does God say? Remember, He's dealing with someone who's self-centered. They're sinning. And what is, he, what is his invitation? The very next words are, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, is that the message that plays in your mind when you wrestle with sin and temptation? Especially after you've failed? If not, ask the Lord to rewrite your story because he's inviting you closer so that you can have victory over sin and begin to live as his child. To remember that we've been united with Christ. We have been Galatians says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God's saying, remember who you are. Remember the righteousness of Jesus Christ because that's what I see and what I want you to do He's come closer. I'll give you victory, but you need to draw near. The fourth step then, he says, is that we are to cleanse our hands. And throughout the scripture, cleansing is a picture of God's word working in our heart. If we want to have victory in the war within, we need to use the Scripture. We need to meditate on it. We need to learn it. We need to internalize the Scripture and allow it to become the very thing, the promises of God that change us, that transform us, that clean us. Now, we are cleaned when we place our trust in Christ by His blood so that um, we are justified before God. But relationally, we still need to be cleansed because we continue to sin. But that happens through confession of sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and through his word. That's why he says in the Psalms, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. It cleanses us. And then he says to purify yourself. That's what confession does. It changes our heart so that we can begin to want the things that God wants rather than what we want. Then he summarizes where he began. Humble yourself before the Lord. Rely on his power and his strength. And here's the promise. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, when we practice these steps, when we rely on His grace, He says He will exalt you. This means He will lift you up and give you victory in the war within. It's a promise. God has said here's how we deal with temptation. Here's how we deal with sinful habits in our life. Here's how we deal with jealous attitudes in our heart. Here's how we deal with greed is we Trust in the grace of God and we follow these steps by submitting ourselves to his authority and power Then, in him resisting the enemy and drawing closer to God. Friend, if you will choose to believe this and live it, it'll make a dramatic difference in your life. And that's my hope and my prayer is that you will be set free this day that God will take the truth of his word and you'll be transformed and experience joy like you've never, ever had it before because God wants you. If you're wrestling with those things, we want you to know you're not alone. And um, after the next song that we'll sing in just a couple of moments, there'll be intercessors over here to pray with you, to encourage you, that you can share your heart with. And we want to provide you resources that can help you win the war within because God wants us to be victorious. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the greatness of your grace. Lord, I know it's so easy for, for us in ourselves, and our own power to get caught in that guilt cycle. Lord, I pray that you would set people free today that your incredible, amazing grace would truly break chains today and people will experience a freedom in Jesus Christ that overwhelms their soul. Lord, for your honor, for your great name, would you work in our hearts and transform us by the power of your grace right now